I think that's good advice for just about anybody. It was last year. It is this year. Don't get COVID, Aaron Rodgers says to his teammates as they have some time off. Although just because there's a bye week, Travis Kelsey told me this last week, just because it's a bye week doesn't mean it's a week off. It's a week that doesn't culminate in the playing of a game, but they still work. They'll be in the facility, and there's a good reason to keep going to the facility, Shereen, because otherwise you could get COVID. So go to the facility every day, work on your craft, and start thinking about the divisional round. The Packers, one of two teams to get the bye, along with the Chiefs. Everybody else playing this weekend for the first time ever. 14 teams in the wild card, six games, three per day, morning, afternoon, evening, Saturday and Sunday. I don't know what to think about that. That's two back-to-back days, Shereen, of football single elimination (laughs) overload. We've never had that before. I don't know what I'm going to think about it until we're on the other side of it. Well, we know what we're going to be, Mike, on Saturday and Sunday, and that's in front of the TV. But I'm going to back up for a second to the the two teams that are off this week, quote-unquote off this week. You don't think anybody's going to go to Cabo this week, do you? (laughs) I have a feeling that we won't be covering that specific story, which means no one's wide receiver will be crying through sunglasses saying, that's my teammate, that's my quarterback after losing in the divisional round. We won't have to worry about Devontae Adams, Travis Kelsey. (coughs) Excuse me. Got some water down the wrong pipe. Tyreek Hill, any of them. Any of them, right. No, that won't be an issue this time. But, uh, man, that still resonates 13 years later. Okay. So we'll be talking later in the show about the wildcard matchups, and we'll be talking all week about the looming playoff games. But this is a strange time of year because 18 teams are done, 14 teams are playing. And for the 18 teams that are done, now a third of them are looking for coaches. And we already knew going into yesterday of three vacancies, Detroit, Atlanta, Houston, the Jets joined that group last night when they fired Adam Gase. And then today, two more that were expected to happen, happened. Let's start with Anthony Lynn, the Chargers coach, 33-31 and 31 in four seasons, was 12-4 in 2018, made it to the divisional round of the playoffs, upset the Ravens on the road in the wild card round of the playoffs. But a disappointment in 2019, this year a disappointment, and also... Too many mistakes, too many opportunities to criticize him. You know, when you're the head coach, you're the guy who's in charge of managing the game and everything else, Shireen. When those mistakes are happening, it falls on you. And it's at a certain point, it reaches a critical mass, and it's just not sustainable. And I think the Chargers realized during the season it wasn't sustainable. Out of respect to him, no leaks, no discussion, no anything. They just put a pin in it until the season was over. Let him get through the season. Don't create any distractions for him. Respect him that way, but the day after the season ended, that was that. Mike, the hard thing is when you're a really bad team and you draft a quarterback high, you're usually on notice the next year anyway, and then the coach gets fired, and then that quarterback has to start over again with the head coach and an offensive coordinator and a new system. And we've seen it so many times, and we're seeing it again, unfortunately, to Justin Herbert uh, in this system. He's going to have to start over again with a new head coach, a new offensive coordinator, and a new system. And 
I'm not going to say that it's going to set him back because he looked really good as a rookie, but it's really hard on these young quarterbacks to have to do that year after year after year. You see Salt with Baker Mayfield. I mean, you name, you can name them. There's tons of them who this has happened to, and it, the, he's not going to be the last one it happens to, and he's not the only one this year, frankly, that it's happened to. But it's unfortunate for him that he won't be in the same system next, next year. But you saw it coming from the, the clock management, the game management, and the losses in the one-score games and giving up leads of 17 points, which Anthony Lynn did consistently. Over the last two years, Anthony Lynn was 12-20. and 20. It was time to go. We all like Anthony Lynn. The Chargers like Anthony Lynn. He didn't get the job done over the last two seasons. It's time to move on to somebody else because this is a team that's ready to win. And I know Bill Parcells has always said, you are what your record says you are. In this case, I think the Chargers are better than what their record says they are based on those one-score losses. And this is a team that's going to be a contender for the postseason next year. This is a team that's had way too many close games over the past several years. Even when they were 12-4, and four, I remember Phillip Rivers saying the summer after that, we could have been 16-0, and 0, we could have been 6-10. and 10. And if you're truly going to become a great team, it's not just every week keep it close and hope that it ultimately goes your way. That was the way Brad Childress ran the Vikings. It was keep it close, keep it close, keep it close, wait for a break late in the game, make a break late in the game, try to avoid that break being made against you. And that's a recipe for eight and eight. That's a recipe for over the long haul, winning as many as you lose. In the NFL, you have to find that edge where you are winning games by more than a score, where you are dominating. It's not easy to do, but the Bills have found it with Josh Allen and the Chargers have their Josh Allen in Justin Herbert. The challenge now is to build around him. That's going to be part of what Tom Telesco, the GM of the team, has to do, but it also is going to be incumbent on the coach to win with that talent because they have a lot of talent. And the other thing with the Chargers, and I don't think it's enough to just hire a new coach. they got too many injuries. And anytime there's a team that has an injury problem, at some point I say, where do you start looking at medical staff, training staff, strength and conditioning. Because when you watch all the games at once on a given Sunday, you see plenty of guys get pretzeled up in a way that makes you think they're not getting up. And they get up. So there is something to be said for pliability, as Tom Brady would say, or whatever it is that allows you to take the physical abuse that happens on a football field and not have something break, fracture, sprain, strain, whatever. And when you have a lot of injuries, I think that you're doing something wrong by way of getting your guys ready to be out on the field. So I would take a close look at that if I was the Chargers. That's been one of their issues in recent years. But they've done the hard part. They've gotten the quarterback, Shereen, and I think that makes it an attractive job, which also makes it an important hire because they're going to have options, a ton of options. And I'd say behind the Jaguars job that we're going to talk about in a minute, I'd say the Chargers is the second most attractive. Oh, I love this job. They were ninth in offense and 10th in defense, one of only a handful of teams that finished in the top 10 in both offense and defense. This is a team that's ready to win now based on what Justin Herbert did this season, setting the rookie record for touchdowns, setting the rookie record for completions. He was really good. They just couldn't win those one-score games. Seven of them they lost. And you talked about the injuries. Another problem they've had, and they reassigned their special teams coach during the season, but it didn't work, is special teams. This has been a really bad special teams unit 
and when they're this bad, you realize how much special teams mean to a team. They missed 12 field goals, Mike, this year, and they had one return for a touchdown. Uh, They were last in net punting. I mean, they were awful on special teams, and that will kill a team. It it doesn't show up all the time when your special teams are just kind of mediocre, but when they're really bad, it shows up and it hurts you, especially when you're playing all these one-score games. They've got to get special teams right. They've got to get their injuries right. Other than that, this, to me, just looks like one of the best job openings. I mean, you're playing in a great new stadium. You're playing. You're coaching in L.A. Who wouldn't want to go there? And you've got the core of a team in place that is ready to win now. And, and anytime you've got a head coach who personally takes over special teams' duties during the season, that means your special teams are a complete and total mess because of all the things a head coach has to do. That's the dirty work that he'd rather not do, that he doesn't have time to do, that does take more time and care than any head coach should have the time to devote to it. And it takes away from from your bigger picture decision-making and management of the team and all the things that a head coach has to do. Well, the Chargers will be looking for a head coach. Now, one drawback to that job, you're in the same division as Patrick Mahomes and will be for the next decade or longer, but at least it's a head coaching job, and at least you have a guy that can be groomed into a great quarterback. The Jaguars... In the AFC South, a more competitive division, they move on from Doug Marone, who accomplished the rare feat of losing 15 games in a row in the same season. The 2001 Panthers did that. They won the first game of the year, then lost 15 in a row, and obviously the 2008 Lions and 2017 Browns did that and losing 16 in a row. But Marone is out 12-36 and in the last three seasons after winning the AFC South in 2017 and getting on the brink of Super Bowl 52. Dave Caldwell, the GM's already out. The name that has bubbled to the surface. And 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 if this is some sort of a test that the Jaguars were implementing to see how discreet Urban Meyer is, he's failed. Because as a result of Urban Meyer talking to a lot of different people who he possibly would hire to be on his staff or to serve as the GM, because Urban Meyer apparently will be hiring the GM in Jacksonville if he takes the job, it's become an open secret that that job goes to Urban Meyer if he wants it. And that cat's so far out of the bag that if if it wasn't accurate, the Jaguars need to come out and disavow. That's how that's how rampant the reporting and the rumors are that it's Urban Meyer's job if he wants it. Now, that kind of turns the Rooney rule on its head and uh, it, it, it doesn't show the kind of discretion and care that I think the NFL wants its teams to demonstrate in a year where there's going to be some pressure, number one, to overcomply with the Rooney rule and ultimately pressure on teams to improve the total numbers because the numbers got to a point last year where it created a, a discussion point for months, Shireen. But in Jacksonville, it looks like Meyer's the guy. You could argue the fact that they fired Marone means that they think they're getting Urban Meyer because I think one of the reasons they held on to Marone was we're going to keep the bird in the hand until we know we can get the two in the bush. But But we'll see. And we'll also see whether or not Urban Meyer, if he takes the job, can be a competent NFL head coach. Some people look at it and say, I don't get it. It's no different than Nick Saban. You're a great recruiter. That, that, that isn't going to do anything for you at the NFL level. Well, and, and we'll see with Matt Rule. Same thing applies to him, and we'll see how he works out. After one year, he looks like he's done an okay job, but is he going to win? Is he going to win a Super Bowl in Carolina? It's the same thing when you hire a college coach if you're Jacksonville. Is Urban Meyer, who has been a great college coach, 
going to be successful at the next level. We've seen it so many times that it hasn't worked with the Chip Kellys. And as you mentioned, even Nick Saban, who's the greatest college coach in history, didn't work out for him. So can can one of those college coaches now make it work out in the NFL? Maybe so, maybe not. If that's who they want, I think it would be a great hire considering they do have the number one overall pick and he would get to pick the quarterback that he wants, whether that's Trevor Lawrence, which we presume for so long, or would it be Justin Fields now based on the way he played and and what he's done and the fact that Urban Meyer has been at Ohio State. So that would be really interesting if that was the hire. And this looks like a great job, Mike, considering the cash that they have next season, the salary cap room, and the fact that all those draft picks they have. However... I paused today when I heard some of Shad Khan's comments that he wants to be in charge. That kind of scared me a little bit, like a mini Jerry Jones. At least Jerry has sort of a football background. He did play at Arkansas, won a national championship. I don't know what kind of football background Shad Khan has, and that's why you hire a GM, and that's why you hire a coach to make those decisions. Is he going to be making a decision on – when the rookie quarterback's going to play, is he going to be making a decision on who the rookie quarterback they draft is? Let's hear a little bit of Shad Khan from earlier today, and then I'll give you my thoughts on his apparent desire to be heavily involved when we get to the other side. Certainly, we have a lot of salary cap uh, availability along with the draft picks and um, obviously the number one pick. But uh, what's evaded the history of the Jags uh, really has been a franchise quarterback. And I think what's unique uh, certainly is that we have the ability now to make a choice and it's going to define the franchise moving forward. He did comment elsewhere during that session on this notion of having final say. But you know what, Shireen, I'm not troubled by that because every owner does have final say. They run and hide and act like they don't but they do. They want to be able to blame somebody else. I, I think Jerry Jones' biggest failure over the last 31 years, and let's face it, if a guy bought a team today and tried to install himself as GM, he would be shouted down by Twitter, by sports radio, by by ESPN, Peacock, NBCSN, every cable network out there. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. You don't just make yourself the GM because once upon a time you played college football. That That doesn't qualify you to be the GM. But ultimately, these guys do have their finger on the pulse. They do get what they want. Matt Ryan was an owner's pick, and it worked out in 2008 by Arthur Blank. They were going to go in a different direction. He wanted Matt Ryan. Tua Tonga-Vailoa was an owner's pick in Miami. Again, the owner doesn't come out and say it. Johnny Manziel was an owner's pick in Cleveland. They're not going to come out and say it. They don't want to be perceived as meddling, and they want to reserve the right to blame someone else for their mistakes. So I I think Shad Khan is just acknowledging the obvious. At the end of the day, it's his team, and he's got to sign off on these picks. And I think it makes it hard, frankly, to justify Justin Fields over Trevor Lawrence if you are Urban Meyer. Now, I think what you would do is you would – you would try to flip-flop with the Jets, try to grift them that way, slide down a spot, pick up some draft picks, and then take Justin Fields if that's what you, what you want to do. But they so desperately need someone who is going to galvanize the fan base. And I think that's that's Trevor Lawrence. That's something they've never had, a guy who's going to be that, you know, like Andrew Luck in 2012, the guy who is the clear, obvious focal point of so much discussion and when he comes to your town he's going to sell out all the tickets he's going to sell jerseys and he's going to make you money at the end of the day that's what it's about you mentioned whether or not Matt Rule's ever going to win a Super Bowl in Carolina I believe frankly 
that David Tepper doesn't ultimately care about winning Super Bowls as much as he cares about building a team that is competitive every year and maximizes its revenue potential. If you hinge success on winning Super Bowls, you are going to be upset more, far more often than not. The Patriots have failed 66% of the time when it comes to winning Super Bowls every year. That's not what it's about. It's about having a, a consistent year and a year out contender, and you hope that you eventually get close enough to the door that you can kick it in and win a, a championship. And the Jaguars, they had the one year in the last 20, the one year, and it looked like they were on the front end of something great, and then it all fell apart, and now they're trying to rebuild it. And I don't know. I just, I don't, I, I got to believe that Urban Meyer, when you look at the health issues he had at Florida, the health issues he had at Ohio State, and it may have all fundamentally been driven by stress. That stress, that 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 type A, double positive personality, that wants to control everything and ultimately can't control the bouncing of a ball, can't control whether or not a referee pulls a yellow flag out of his pocket. There's so much you can't control about football, and it gets worse at the NFL level. That's what drove Nick Saban crazy. That's what drove Nick Saban back to college after only two years. And part of me wonders. What's really the difference between Nick Saban and Urban Meyer? And will Urban Meyer ultimately say, I can't do this after getting a couple of years under his belt, Shireen? But you do wonder, Mike, if if Nick Saban had picked the right quarterback, which was Drew Brees, obviously, as we know, instead of Dante Culpepper back then, if he would have been a success at the NFL level. Maybe he would have been. And that has been the Jaguars' problem, as Shad Khan said. They've drafted three in the first round, Byron Leftwich, Blaine Gabbert, and Blake Bortles, and none worked out. This one looks like one of the surest things we've ever seen in the NFL. And I'm talking about Trevor Lawrence. If they pick Justin Fields, he looks like he can succeed. But everyone's been on Trevor Lawrence for two years, uh, that he is the, the next coming of Andrew Luck and Peyton Manning and those guys who were surefire number one overall picks that is going to lead your franchise for a really long time. So you have a chance to do that in Jacksonville if you take that job, something that Nick Saban didn't have when he got Dante Culpepper instead of Drew Brees. Yeah, and, and, and look, Nick Saban himself has said within the past few years that he would still be the coach of the Dolphins if they had taken Drew Brees. There's no guarantee that Nick Saban was going to groom Drew Brees into the quarterback he became. There was a reason Drew Brees was available as a free agent. The, the Chargers saw a few years of Brees and said, we need to do better. We can do better. And they got Phillip Rivers. And they let Drew Brees walk away after a couple of years following the drafting of Phillip Rivers. And, uh, and yeah, look, the Dolphins picked Dante Culpepper with a wrecked knee and gave up a second-round draft selection to get him over Drew Brees who was free and clear free agent, but he had 26 studs in his shoulder from the injury he suffered in, in the regular season finale in 2005. But that was Sean Payton and Drew Brees that created something magical. I don't know that it's a given that it would have worked with Nick Saban and Drew Brees, and I don't know that it's a given that's going to work for Urban Meyer. I think that, that we've I, I just think at a certain level, Shad Khan is in bright, shiny object mode, and he is fascinated by having the number one overall pick, getting Trevor Lawrence, and then being the guy who can go out and hire a name that is on the A-list every year, even though we don't know what that guy's going to be if and when he's an NFL head coach. And we reported today he's looking for $12 million a year, and people are like, oh, $12 million a year. And look. $12 million a year is not unreasonable in today's NFL. And when you follow where the revenue is going, when you understand what gambling is going to do 
to the value of teams. I had someone suggest to me not too long ago that these teams are going to be worth $7 billion or more each before too long once the gambling industry really matures and is in enough states and they start making money over money over money and the teams identify the revenue streams. $12 million a year for a head coach is nothing. You're paying backup quarterbacks $12 million a year. Coach is far more important than backup quarterback. $12 million a year is nothing. I'm surprised it wasn't more than that for Meyer Shireen. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. I think he's worth every penny of it based on what he did in college and what he can do for you in the NFL or what you can think he can do for you in the NFL if you're convinced that's the guy who can win, you can win with. And so I think he would be worth every penny of that if that's the guy you identify as your guy and that's what he wants and and you want him, you go pay what he wants and get him in and, and hope that he is the right choice. And if he's not, you're going to be paying him off in a few years. And, and let me reconcile my two points there. I'm not sold that Meyer is going to work at the NFL level, but if you are sold on him, then $12 million a year is not an unreasonable amount to pay. And it appears that Shad Khan and the Jaguars are sold on Urban Meyer, and we'll see. If, number one, they can sell him on the job because he still has to decide to do it and whether or not he can ultimately succeed. But he will have Trevor Lawrence if he wants him, and... Uh, the Jaguars may become a relevant team far sooner than later in a division that, even though it was very competitive this year, and look, you've got Deshaun Watson, you've got Ryan Tannehill, who knows who the Colts are going to have as their quarterback, but but that, that, that could be a compelling division with Trevor Lawrence and Urban Meyer in it. Um, we, we talked earlier about the best openings, and I think that we both are in agreement that it's Jaguars than Chargers, because Jaguars is the biggest open slate it's an empty palette and you have the cash and the cap space and the draft picks jaguars makes the most sense to me we agree that the chargers is second beyond that shereen i'm not sure what's next maybe the jets you know the problem with lions texans falcons and and you know the, the I, I, I try to choose my words carefully here. This is a reality, and I mentioned it last night on Football Night in America as it relates to Rich McKay in Atlanta. The more layers there are between the coach and the GM and ownership, the more the more buffers there are, the more people there are, whether it's Jack Easterby in Houston, whether it's Rod Wood and Chris Spielman in Detroit, whether it's Rich McKay in Atlanta, that makes the job less attractive. And the average fan doesn't really understand that. But, but what happens is you're trying to do your job day in and day out. You're trying to run your team. And you've got somebody in between who's got less accountability than you that think they know better than you that is whispering to the owner. And to justify their existence, they have to look for things that they can criticize. They have to look for things that they can say they're not doing it right. We need to tell them to do it differently. That creates dysfunction. It is an atmosphere. It is an environment that breeds dysfunction. And I'm telling you, the most competent and capable candidates are looking at those teams, Shireen, that have that buffer between the football operations, the coach and the GM, and ownership. And they're saying, if I can take a job where I don't have that, that extra layer of communication, of, of complication, I don't want that job. Yeah, and I love the Houston job simply because you have Deshaun Watson as your quarterback, and we know he's a franchise quarterback. We saw it. He's been terrific, and no one's noticed because they've been so bad, and that defense is in need of a complete rebuild right now. It's awful. They have so many problems. They, have, they don't have the number three overall pick. 
They don't have many picks because of all those stupid trades. And Laramie Tunsil, frankly, was not worth the number three overall pick. It was stupid. And now you've moved on for that. So if I'm going to Houston, I know I'm going to have all those layers, as you mentioned, and I'm going to have to have time to rebuild despite having the franchise quarterback in place. So I tell you what, it's going to take a long-term deal for me to do that where I'm going to have to be an assistant coach who's never had that opportunity before and may never get that opportunity again. And I think that's why Houston ends up with an assistant coach who's never been a head coach before because they will want that job thinking they can rebuild it and, and, and do it over a period of time. It's not going to be done quickly, quickly, but over a period of four or five years. And are you going to get four or five years? That's my question, and I don't know that you are. I think they're going to expect you to win now because they have been successful over the past few years. But Bill O'Brien, frankly, tore that franchise apart over the last couple of years, Mike. I'd say the Texans are at a spot where the 49ers were four years ago, where they had to give six-year fully guaranteed contracts both to the coach and the general manager to create the impression that they're not just going to have a revolving door and fire you after a year or two. The wild card in Houston is Jack East to be the executive VP of football operations. There, There's a sense out there that he's, he's not going to be as influential and powerful as people think, and the GM is going to determine his role. I'll believe all that when I see it, because I think there's a broader play going on here to create the impression that Easterby isn't going to have power and control. But when we see who gets hired, it's going to be obvious this is somebody that Easterby signed off on. He's going to be able to maintain his influence without it being obvious, because that that's the sweet spot for these folks who have the best jobs in football, where you get paid a hell of a lot of money, where you've got a ton of influence, where you can claim credit when things go well, when it goes sideways, you don't get fired like the coach and the GM. That's the best job to have. That's the job you can have for 15 or 20 years and never get fired. And that is the thing that drives coaches and GMs crazy because their attitude is if you're going to have any involvement in football, then you, you get in the boat with us. And if it sinks, you sink along with it. All right. Uh, the, the names that have been flooding out today, well, we don't need to get into the whole lather, rinse, repeat. We know the usual candidates. We know the names that are going to keep coming up, whether it's Robert Sala, the defensive coordinator of the Lions, Eric Bieniemy, the chief's assistant uh, coach, offensive coordinator. All the names that we've heard are going to keep coming up, and there's going to be a lot of interviews that unfold. The real thing for me is when it starts to focus on who the candidates are. We're too early in the process. Other than Jacksonville, thanks to Urban Meyer, talking too much. We don't know where the chess pieces are going to go, but that will be determined. Another thing we do know is that Zach Taylor will be back with the Bengals. As of yesterday, there was a real sense that he could be in trouble. I, the fact that they had to come out with a statement this morning to say that he's not tells me because I, I don't know that they've got uh, – maybe they do have rabbit ears there. Maybe they do care what others say. I, I, I They felt compelled to make it clear that Zach Taylor wasn't on watch along with Marone and Lynn and anyone else. I, I don't know that it's the right call. They're the ones that have to decide who their coach is going to be. But 6-25-1, the Joe Burrow knee injury, uh, and having Joe Burrow, that, that would make the job – even more attractive but the thing is they don't like to buy out coaches who still have time left on their contract Shireen and then you'd have to go out and pay a bunch of money to a new coach now that the market has changed it's been lifted by the Matt Rule thing so if you've got a bargain in Zach Taylor you keep Zach Taylor and you don't have to pay Zach Taylor to not be your head coach that's exactly right Mike bingo on that the the Bengals have never been known to pay off coaches they weren't going to pay off Zach Taylor this year 
I was surprised they released a statement because I didn't think Zach Taylor was in trouble just because of that. You don't see Mike Brown paying off coaches, and I didn't expect that uh, to be the case. And as I talk about Justin Herbert changing systems and offensive court, I like this simply because he'll have the same system, the same play caller for a second consecutive year, and I think he can build on that. Now, we don't know when he's going to come back after that injury that he had. It may not be at the start of the season. He's certainly going to miss the offseason, but he can be in the virtual meetings. I know he learned a lot this year, but I'm looking forward to seeing what Joe Burrow can do in a second year in Zach Taylor's system. Last point before we take a break. John Elway announced today that he will give up the title of GM but remain the president of football operations with Denver. He will have final say. It is a strange situation because they don't have an owner, and no one knows when they will have an owner. There is a three-person board of trustees that eventually will determine in this bizarre Willy Wonka intra-family competition who gets the keys to the chocolate factory. Until that happens, John Elway will be in charge of the football side of things because who else are they going to find who would gladly take that job at a time when ownership is in such a state of flux? And good luck hiring a general manager who has options elsewhere, who's going to go in clearly playing second fiddle to John Elway, clearly being the person who's going to take the blame if it continues to not work out, and ultimately on the clock for whenever ownership gets resolved, you're going to be out the door. It is not frankly, an attractive job because of those limitations on the future and the growth and the potential security of taking that position, Shereen. And you have the same head coach, so you inherit the head coach, Mike, Vic Fangio, and who knows what you think of Vic Fangio when you go in there. And on top of that, you have Drew Locke at quarterback. Has he shown anything over two years that he can be your franchise guy? And I know what John Elway said And I know what Vic Fangio has said. They have to have questions after two years of Drew Locke. To me, this looks like a lot of problems in this organization on having to hire a GM at this point because if you have options to go elsewhere, I just think you're going to go elsewhere. This is, in my opinion, a GM light job. That's what it is. And they'll find somebody to take it. Because there's always going to be somebody out there that wants to get the bump up in title, the bump up in salary, the bump up in responsibility. Even if it's not the whole cake, it's, it's enough of the cake. It's more of the cake than they currently are eating. So they'll take it. That, that They will find someone. But they're not going to find an A-lister because the A-lister is going to go to the place where the A-lister knows it's a real GM job. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not being critical. I, I'm, I'm being analytical. It is not a real GM job if John Elway is still in charge of the football operations and will be making the final decisions based upon whatever work that you do as the GM. And you're stuck with the head coach who's already there. You're stuck with the quarterback who's already there. And you have to to operate within that that broader scenario that you're not going to be able to change. All right, we're going to change gears when we return. Some initial thoughts on the wild card matchups to come this weekend. Super wild card, three games per day on Saturday and Sunday. We'll have more PFTPM right after this. Doug, now that you've had a night to sleep on it, um, I know you're a guy that, uh, respects the game very much. And uh, last night when you took out Jalen uh, in a close game, I-, I think you're aware that it sent a message kind of uh, across the league. I think fan, Eagles fans were upset about it, but I think football fans were upset about 
what it said. Um, can you speak to that now that you've slept on it a little bit about, um, you know, the message that maybe that that sent and the perception that people had about the way that the game panned out? You know, I, I, I've thought about that quite a bit. And, um, uh, you know, quite frankly, I, I look at the entire body of work. I look at the entire season, and, and it's definitely not the season that we all had anticipated. And, you know, our, our offensive struggles have, have not been about, you know, one one position group or, or one guy or, you know, uh, whatever. It's, 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 it's been a, it's been a, a multi, multitude of, of issues that we've had. And, and, and again, last night in that game, you know, we were in a situation where we, we, we failed to score as an offense. We failed to score there at the end of the third quarter. We were, we were struggling just a little bit to move the ball. Defensively, they kept us, kept us in the game with a couple of takeaways late. And, and, and my plan was to, was to get Nate in the game. Nate, Nate's, Nate's a guy that, that is very capable of, uh, of running our system and, and executing and, and, and an opportunity to, to, to pull that game out last night. And, there's the headline in the Washington Post sports section. Tanks for everything. And in Philly, they're saying tanks for nothing. But uh, I said it this morning. I'm going to say it now. Doug Peterson, after the game and this morning, both came off as a guy who is delivering a speech that he has rehearsed in the mirror repeatedly. Because I just don't buy it. He's saying what he thinks he has to say. He didn't even answer the question. He eventually kind of got around to it, but he didn't get into any of the nitty-gritty of this perception that they deliberately and intentionally chose to lose the game. That's what they did. And if they didn't, they should be offended. They should be on the offensive, not the defensive. They should be loud. They should be in your face. They should be yelling and screaming and sending out statements, denying that they would ever undermine the integrity of the game. The mere fact that they're not reacting that way, Shireen, tells me they did it. They knew what they were doing. Now, fundamentally, look, I was upset last night about it, primarily because I was upset with myself for not seeing that it was coming. (laughs) I allowed myself to buy into the hype of game 256, and it's a special game, and you're going to go out there and you're going to play hard. And, and, you know, we're going to have the highest level of regular season competition. It's a playoff, play-in game, and it it, it never occurred to me. It was stuck in the blind spot on, on each side mirror for me that, that the Eagles were going to say, well, you know what, screw it. We'd rather have the sixth overall pick than the ninth overall pick. That's what I'm upset about because I get it. I've been saying for years, who, ca- who cares about the difference between 5, 10, and 1 and 4, 11, and 1? Who cares? That, that, that gives you nothing. Getting the sixth overall pick gives you something. Well, and Mike, I think they would have lost anyway. I don't think they were going to win that game. I mean, Washington kept trying to give it to them, obviously, but it didn't work. And and I do think they eventually would have lost. I don't feel sorry for the Giants. I mean, win more games. This is a horrible division. They shouldn't even division champions shouldn't even be going on to the postseason. But Washington ended up being the best team in the division. And I think if you have to have one of those teams go, then it was definitely Washington. So I don't feel any sadness for for the Giants at all? Go win more games is is what I would say to the New York Giants today. But I keep going back <clears throat> to and I watched it last night. The the Jason Kelsey 
video from December, from the middle of December when he talked about winning and the integrity of the game, and that's what you do. You go out and you play uh, the game to win. And I'm just wondering how you go back in that locker room as a coach and you try to sell to your team that that's not what we did and we're looking to the future of the franchise and all those sorts of things. I just don't know how you build that back within your team. And I think going forward, this could be a problem uh, within that locker room of those guys who are there again next year. That's what I was told by somebody who's been involved in the NFL for over 30 years last night, that it makes sense to do it, but you lose something culturally when you actually do it. And it's one thing for a team that is in position to get the first overall pick to suddenly decide we are going to do our best to grab that brass ring by falling off of the horse and blowing a double-digit second-half lead like the Buccaneers did Week 17 in 2014 when they were up 20-7 to in the fourth quarter, pulled half their starters and lost the game and got the rights to Jameis Winston. I guess that was the punishment from a karma standpoint, the Jameis Winston five years in Tampa. But it's one thing to do that when you have a team that's going to be gutted anyway. This is an Eagles team that just, the way they would tell it, needs a retooling. Well, now you've got to rebuild your credibility with those veteran players that are wondering why, why what are we doing here? Why, you know, and again, it's the, it's the setting. It's that game 256. It's, it's a game that has direct relevance to Washington and the Giants. And we were led to believe just by the circumstances, the Giants and the Cowboys have the elimination game at one o'clock Eastern. Well, that game ultimately means nothing if Philadelphia isn't going to try to beat Washington. And I think that's what made football fans upset. We were led to believe that last night's game was going to mean something all the way through. And then when all of a sudden it didn't, I remember getting the text message from you because I was up here in the studio and we had just done a digital discussion with Tony Dungy, Rodney Harrison, and Mike Tirico, and we saw on the monitor, just as we finished, the fourth and goal play. And we were trying to figure out why they would go for it, fourth and goal down 17-14, and Tony said, well, I guess it's the analytics telling you got to go for it there instead of taking the tie, and we, we, we couldn't process it. And then I got the text message from you, oh my God, I can't believe they're going to put Nate Sudfeld in the game, and I was flabbergasted. And, and again, I was upset with myself at the end of the day because I didn't see it coming. It makes sense, but I don't think anybody saw it coming last night, including the NFL. And moving forward, the lesson to be learned by the NFL is when you're picking that game, just because you found the one game that on paper has playoff ramifications that survive the other 15, you better be damn sure that the other team has something to play for because the same thing could happen uh, in the future. All right, uh, let's talk briefly about the coming wild card round, and we, we got all week to talk about it. But just for now, we 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 know the six games. Which one of the six are you looking forward to the most, Shereen? Well, Mike, I'm looking forward to the Titans and the Ravens meeting again, just because they met twice, obviously recently at the end of last season in the postseason, and that was a huge Titans upset, 28-12. We all thought the Ravens were going to go to the Super Bowl and going to be Super Bowl champions, and it didn't work out that way. And and Derrick Henry destroyed them, 195 yards, and even threw a touchdown pass in that one. And then they come back this year, and the Titans win again with Derrick Henry having that overtime touchdown run. I think it was 29 yards that let them win in overtime. So I'm looking forward to that one. And and I know there's not such a thing as revenge, and there's you know this is a different team than last year, but. The Ravens now are favored despite being on the road and they get their shot to get quote unquote revenge 
against the Titans. And I think this is going to be a terrific game. We may see almost, well, probably over 300 yards rushing maybe by each team. So you could have up to five or 600 yards in this game rushing, Mike. The, the Ravens have showed no sign that they can stop Derrick Henry. And I don't think that Titans defense can stop anybody on the Ravens. The Ravens uh, have been great in recent weeks. The narrative that they can't win in the playoffs with Lamar Jackson has gone out the window because they've been playing playoff stakes games for the past five weeks. One false move, and they're not in. The Dolphins are in. It's, it's been proven by the way it played out. They had to win every one of those games to get to where they are. So that, that I think, reduces the pressure. And the fact that they had that little skirmish this year in Baltimore when there were guys from the Titans who were out on the logo before the game and, and Jim Har- John Harbaugh excuse me, got into it with the players. I remember talking to A.J. Brown after the game. He's like, a, a, a coach is going to come take on players? Are you kidding me? And then Mike Vrabel gets involved, and it was ugly after the game. So that adds some intrigue to it as well. But uh, I, I agree with you. That, to me, stands out as a must-see game. But also... The Browns and the Steelers, 18 years after the only other playoff game since the Cleveland Browns came back into the league, 2002, it was at Pittsburgh, same stadium, same circumstance, a wild card game. They're at it again. And when the Browns went in there earlier this year, I thought the Browns were going to win because I wasn't impressed with the Steelers' wins that far in the season. And the Steelers smacked them down. And we've seen this before where two teams get together again and the outcome is different. This Pass game doesn't matter because it was JV versus JV between the COVID issue and the Steelers resting guys. It's going to be strength on strength come Sunday, just like it was back during the regular season. And the Steelers haven't lost to the Browns at Heinz Field since 2003. I'm fascinated by that one because I think if the Browns can weather any early storm, then it's going to have a different vibe than it did. And you throw in the fact that there isn't going to be a fan in the building. Uh, th- that game, to me, is going to be the most fascinating of the week. And it could be over by the end of the first quarter, or it could go all the way down to the wire and the Browns could win it. And I have no idea who I'm going to pick in that one. My niece, who's a huge Browns fan, has already threatened to disown me if I don't pick the Browns to win that game. But it's going to be tough. It's going to be gutsy to pick the Browns based upon what happened during the regular season. Well, and that's what's so weird about this game, Mike, is normally when we have back-to-back matchups like this, like you're like, well, they they just played. But these are going to be completely different teams that we're going to see this week as compared to last week. As you said, it was JV on JV. So that's why, to me, this game is so intriguing because these are different teams than what we saw yesterday. I think the fact that they just lined up across from those uniforms and helmets may strip away some of the intimidation that you would feel going into Pittsburgh and knowing the last time you went there, you got smacked down. So I expect the Browns to be ready. I expect the Browns to be different than they were earlier this year. And let's face it, the Steelers are different than they were earlier this year. They've had one good half of football the past month and a half. Can they get that lawnmower started and play hard against the Browns and knock them out? But that should be a great one. We'll be talking about all the playoff games more as the week unfolds. I will return a quick little uh, sliver of last night's conversation on the Football Night in America set, and then we'll answer all your questions coming up after this on PFTPN.
Tom Brady, 40 touchdowns with the Buccaneers. Almost as many touchdowns as years on earth. And how how much of the year did we hear, Tom Brady's not playing that well. The system, and it's not this, and it's not that, and it doesn't fit him. 40 touchdown passes. And probably I've thrown for more yardage than he, he's thrown for in, in New England. So and It just seems like he's a different he just has a different level of focus. You see how well he's playing. He's throwing the ball down the field, and it just seems like they're getting better each week. One of the big problems for the Browns in 2019 was they failed to properly manage expectations for the media and the fans. And I think the Buccaneers really mishandled early on, not reeling in this idea that they were a team that was bound for great things because it took them a while to find their footing. And they, hey, it worked out at the end of the day, but but there was this lingering, nagging sense early on that they weren't going to be as good as they ended up being because... They, they, they embraced this idea that you just had Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski and Antonio Brown and everything's instantly going to be better. It took some time, but that's the dangerous part. The time has played out, and they're better, and I think they're one of the most dangerous teams in the NFC field. But you, you said it. That was one of the reasons they signed Tom Brady, and it worked. My kids bought Super Bowl uh, <laughs> outfits and Tom Brady um, jerseys. It was incredible, but they really wanted that, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Hey, wait, your kids bought Tom Brady jerseys? Yes. That's, that's so yes. nice. Wait, wait, wait. You <laughs> never told me that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do that to you. Really? That's, that's wrong. I'll show you the picture. The <laughs> that's wrong. When, when, when I wrote down when I wrote down Brady's stats this year during football night, I wrote down 14 interceptions, and immediately I thought of being here one year ago. So I got Jameis Winston throwing 30-plus interceptions, yeah. right? That's 16 fewer times you gave the ball away. What a difference that makes. Also, the leadership that he brings. Let's begin our mailbag session today with a Brady-related question. From the Twitter account, Dorian is not gray, which frankly applies to Tom Brady on multiple levels. How much of Tommy's future in Tampa Bay has to do with the length of their playoff run? Do you think he'll be back after a first round exit or a Super Bowl win? Is there a, a scenario where you see that he doesn't return in 2021? Look, I, it's been made clear to me and the talk around the, the league is, is uh, obvious on this point. The Buccaneers want Brady back next year more than anything else. They want him back because they intend to have a full stadium next year, and they want to get the financial windfall of having Tom Brady. And the farther they go in the playoffs, the greater the urgency to get him back next year because it's just a taste of what 2021 can be, even if they win the Super Bowl. They could try to win two in a row with Tom Brady. So they want him back no matter what. And, and Shereen, I think the improvements they've made in recent weeks, I fault them for not properly managing expectations in August, September, October, and into November. Since the bye week, though, they've been very good. And I think as we all kind of decided maybe they're not going to be that good this year, that lowered the expectations organically. And now, they're, they're look, they're, I think, one of the most dangerous teams in the NFC playoff field. I think he's going to be back no matter what next year. He, he looks great. He's going to be 44 in August. And he hasn't lost a thing yet. And he wants to prove to himself and to all of us that he can keep playing deep into his 40s. I think we have to start thinking about him ripping up the expected deadline of the, the season that would happen when he turns 45, which would be 2022. I think he may play longer than that. So I don't know how much and I don't think much of what happens in the playoffs is going to get him to not come back. Even if they win the Super Bowl, I don't see him walking away because it's more about it's about more at this point than winning Super Bowls. It's about proving how far he can push it into the future. 
not only do they want him back, Mike, which we know that because, as you said, this is about money, making money. It's a money-making business, and they didn't get the, the windfall from that from having the full stadiums. We know how much they've struggled putting people in the seats and all the jerseys they sold this year, all those sorts of things. They absolutely want him back, and I think that Tom Brady wants to come back. I think he likes living there. I think he likes working with Bruce Arians, despite the sometimes criticism. And I think he thinks he can win there with the weapons that he had. He's never had those kind of weapons at, at New England. Even the Randy Moss year, I don't think he had that group of weapons that he has now. He feels like he can win in a second year. He certainly feels like he can get that done. The last four games, he's been terrific. 12 touchdowns, one interception. And I think we've all kind of ignored it, but this just again speaks to the greatness of Tom Brady. He's been great this season, Mike. And if they'd won those Saints games, we'd probably have him in the MVP conversation. And just think of how much better he'll be if he has a full offseason to prepare and knows the offense even better and knows the personnel even better. That was what slowed them down out of the gates. It's not slowing them down now. And again, I think they're going to be incredibly dangerous in January. One more quick one from Sean Alvishire. Do you think the Dolphins will consider using the third overall pick on a quarterback after what they've seen from Tua this season? I don't know why you wouldn't evaluate, fully evaluate. And if it takes you that way, so be it. The Cardinals did it. With Josh Rosen a couple of years ago, if you come to the conclusion you can get a better quarterback with that third overall pick, you deal with it. You make the pick, and you move on from Tua if that's what you have to do. I, I'm concerned that they picked the wrong guy. If I was a Dolphins fan, it would be causing me significant angst and, and consternation right now that we could have had Justin Herbert and we didn't take him. Well, and the problem is you feel like Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields are going to be gone one and two, whatever order it is, but they're both going to be off the off the board for number three. And then you're talking about, you know, other guys like BYU's uh, Zach Wilson and Trey Lance from North Dakota State and guys like that. Maybe they get a quarterback later in the first round with that second pick, Mike, rather than the rather than that number three overall pick. Yeah, we'll see how it plays out. One of the big issues of the offseason. Plenty of offseason issues to unfold as we get into the postseason. We'll be covering it at ProFootballTalk.com around the clock. We'll see you tomorrow morning for PFT Live.